We have another great interview today on Off the Dome Radio. We have Keith Magnus, who is the director of the Butler University Counseling and Consultation Center. He's a clinical psychologist who also does some work for the Woodview Psychology Group. Very interesting conversation. He specializes in the areas of anxiety, uh, depression, sleep orders, insomnia, uh, sleep disorders, and insomnia, uh, interpersonal relationships, identity, and personal growth. Uh, So in this interview, Keith explains his educational professional background, how he figured out his true passion uh, through his experience in grad school, because I know when he first went to grad school, he was looking at the clinical side, um, but eventually just moved into the therapist side, working one-on-one. He explains how he found that. Um, He talks about his research on subjective well-being, which he defined as the same thing as happiness. But back then when you were trying to get funding, it sounded better. (laughs) Yeah, interesting hearing his research on that, the hard work he did on that. Talks about how parents can create the happiest environment for their kids by by staying engaged. Mm -hmm. Kind of a similar situation we had with Bob Vito, but Keith kind of shed his experience on it just from a a research standpoint because he's been dealing with this his whole life from that perspective. Uh, he also talks about and sheds some light on the areas of therapy that he didn't expect at first. Uh, he talks about the emotional barriers that, that we as humans face and have to overcome, especially within therapy. Um, and then Keith describes what it means to find uh, the why behind everything, like what people are feeling, uh, calling the elephant into a room and, and addressing the underlying issues directly. Because I know as humans, we, we deal with problems every day. But I feel like it's easy to look at it from the surface level, but not take a step back as to why am I feeling this way? It's okay to feel this way, but understand why. So he kind of explains that. Yeah, he, he was he was really good at, at kind of bringing it close to home, too. Because there were some things that he said that, that really hit me where I was like, man, yeah, that's me right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, going off that, like he, the, the why, you can tell he, he talked differently when it was like, finding that out like that's a big deal uh but it was cool to hear how he created those trustworthy environments within the department as director what he had to do so people would feel comfortable going to a therapist Mm -hmm. to any and he talked about things that he believes led to the increase in students going to therapy now uh, or the decrease in the negative stigma of therapy in and of itself in general uh, so and and he had some pretty surprising numbers that he shared with us too that I had no idea. I'm like that's that's pretty awesome. And he, he talks about action steps uh, for students transitioning out of college, which I know is something you and I have talked about and struggled struggled with before. You know some of that relocation depression, but he said that's such a big transition. And one thing I think I did that a lot of people do they underestimate how much that's really impacting them and they don't handle it as well mm-hmm. like i said guilty as charged but uh then he uh we got into opportunities on campus uh for mental health since that's that's really big for them now so uh, we wanted to see what kind of things they do on and off campus what's available what kind of resources students have uh and then he he wraps it up um, given his knowledge on what it means to live a meaningful life so as as podcasters that try to harp on you know make sure you just really enjoy what you want to do and and take it by the reins he uh he talks about what it means to have meaningful life uh which which gets a little little deep at the end but it was man powerful powerful interview and uh if anyone is is thinking i might need to talk to someone look that this is the episode to really really tune in because it's that stigma is going it's it's not 
what it used to be. It's, it's okay. Yeah. So, uh, without further ado, here we are sitting down with Keith Magnus. So we're live with Keith Magnus. Thanks for joining the show, Keith. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so this is cool. I, I like going into interviews uh, when I haven't met someone before, and Tim kind of introduced us. So, uh, Tim, if you kind of want to give a little intro as well. I'd, um, it's my first time here, but I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, we're here uh, We're here at Butler University at the in the Health and Recreation Complex in the Counseling Consultation Center uh, with Keith Magnus, who is the director of the Counseling Consultation Center. Uh, and Keith, I guess, if you want to just go into your background, uh, how you found this path, um, and just kind of your experience at Butler University so far with this, just your background. Okay, yeah, sure. So um, I found psychology in high school, luckily, uh, so it was pretty early for me. Um, I was interested, I thought I was interested actually in accounting, economics, uh, a little bit finance, kind of what you were saying you were getting into, and um, then I took psychology, uh, and yeah, that really uh, piqued my interest uh, in high school. So I went into undergrad as a psychology major, um, and as an undergrad, uh, you know, I was told right away, you know, if you want to do anything in psychology, you have to go to grad school, um, which was good advice. And so uh, they said, well, to get to grad school, you need to um, do some research, maybe publish something, um, you know, have professors that can speak, you know, uh, for you, give you good references, uh, do well in your GREs, etc. So um, I did all that at the University of Illinois. Uh, and from that and doing some of that research, um, my I did like an undergraduate thesis uh, that was uh, related to subjective well-being, essentially. And um, from that, I thought I wanted to actually go into academia, uh, teach. Um, so I looked around for graduate programs that uh, were, that had programs in, at the time it was called community psychology, uh, which was really about uh, grassroots efforts, prevention, uh, systematic, uh, systemic change. Uh, so rather than, I didn't, and at the time I didn't think like oh, I'm going to sit down and do individual therapy with people. Um, I was more thinking yeah, more broadly, like like I said, like I'd like to uh, move the needle kind of within culture uh, or in systems in kind of a larger way. And uh, so I went to University of Rochester uh, for grad school. Uh, they were doing research in prevention and, and community psychology and, and it's right up my alley. So went there, uh, got involved in the research, and then uh, as a clinical psychology doctoral student, you have to do practicum. So you have to get some practical experience. And Re University of Rochester is very research focused. So um, they didn't, you know, they just said, hey, go to the university counseling clinic, do your hours. But they're really focused on producing professors and you know, doing research. So I went to the counseling center. Uh, I remember really clearly the first three undergraduate students I got as clients. Um, I can remember them to this day. And um, I loved it. Like, I was like, oh, this really speaks to me. Um, you know, this one-on-one -on -one doing therapy. So um, by the time I was done with graduate school, I really changed uh, lanes. And I, because I was on the, like, research professor, this is what I'm doing. 
And um, by the time I left, uh, I went on internship. You have to do a full year internship before you can get licensed as a psychologist. So when I left and did internship, uh, from there I knew, yeah, I, I want to do, do therapy instead of uh, doing research. Because it felt a lot more uh, in the moment, immediate, like, oh, I'm making a difference in this person's life. The research was, it felt meaningful, but in like a real abstract you know, you do a lot of work, you maybe publish something in a journal and maybe somebody reads it and, it, you know, it just felt like too far yeah. away for me. I liked the research process, but just kind of how it felt, um, it wasn't as, like I said, immediate and as gratifying as sitting down with people and, mm -hmm. you know, helping them in the moment. So, um, so I, I worked in community health for a few years after uh, getting licensed and that was down in Florida. And then... Um, my partner's also a psychologist, so she did her internship. Uh, it landed us here in Indiana. And um, she you know, got her degree, she did her internship here, and then this job came open. And uh, I always had in mind, I, I knew that I wanted to be on a college campus. Um, so when this job came open, I didn't know exactly what I was getting into, but it turned out, you know, this was 2001, so I've been here 19 years. Mm. Uh, it turned out better than I thought. Uh, on paper, it looked good. It's like, oh, you know, college campus. Uh, they had a training program. I like working with trainees. Uh, so, like I said, I feel really, really lucky uh, in terms of kind of finding my way. Uh, you know, it took a turn. Uh, it didn't go exactly as planned. But uh, by the time I got here, um, I felt like, oh yeah, this is this is where I uh, this is where I meant to be, and, and being in the training role was a big part of that. Um, Butler's a big part of that. Uh, just the, you know, the feel of campus, uh, the students at Butler, um, great to work with. So a lot of things just fit. Um, and here I am uh, 19 years later. <laughs> <laughs> Still going strong. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And I wanted to ask, so like when you first got in to the one-on-one -on -one scene, mm -hmm. Did you pretty did you slip into it pretty pretty comfortably? Were there any hurdles you had to overcome <laughs> personally when you first did that? I'm sure it was a transition at first. Right? Yeah, big transition. Yeah, I I remember sitting with people, and my idea of therapy was like um, having a bit of a roadmap for people. So my initial, you know, my supervisors, I'd go, you know, you record all of your initial sessions, you go to supervision, play the recordings, you know, and they, my supervisor would listen to it and say, you know, first of all, like. It, it, you, and, and I would ask them, like, so what do I do next? And where are we going with this? And, you know, big lesson number one was uh, not to go in with a plan. There isn't a plan. Everyone's unique. Uh, my mind just works at, like, I'm kind of a logical, like, this goes to this. And, and, and some, you know, clients call for that, too. They look like, I want the answer, and I want to know what to do, and give me the steps. Um, it was, you know, it, it was not the way they practiced. It's not the way I was then trained. Um, it's, and I don't think it's the way it really works for most people. So that was a, that was just a huge yeah. kind of shift for me. Um, I just I'm not accustomed to thinking that way, and I had to really, yeah, make a big change in how I was approaching the work, which was it's kind of messy and it's kind of there's some unknowns and like being okay with that. Like uh -huh. that's that's not how I went into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of a learn on the go type of thing. Learn on the go, and also just being okay with like not knowing. Uh -huh. um, and having kind of, like I said, um, you know, I, again, I would want to go in like, you know, what are we going to do with this hour and where do we go next? And, you know, my supervisor was like, follow the client, be, you know, 
do your good listening, but also, you know, have some idea of maybe what's going on for them. Uh, but don't over, you can't overthink it or over plan it. Uh, that just doesn't work for most uh -huh. people. Uh -huh. Yeah. So that was a big one, uh, big shift, uh, in terms of what I thought I was <laughs> supposed to be doing and kind of how it actually played out. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Keith, I'm interested in, you mentioned a thesis about subjective well-being. Uh-huh. And I'm kind of interested what that is. Can you take us through that, what you wrote about and researched and what that is in general? Yeah. Yeah, well, so a uh, fancy word for ha happiness. You know, back in mm -hmm. the 90s, you know, if you were trying to get grant funding for happiness research, you know, they were like, eh. But if you call it subjective well-being, okay. it's like, <laughs> oh, that, that sounds a little more scientific. Yeah, we can fund right. that. Um, so there's a guy at University of Illinois that uh, is pretty much the leader in that field. Uh, so I got in his lab and um, I actually looked at, uh, he was is in the middle of a longitudinal study. So we looked at um, whether people were essentially happy and um, how their personality traits um, interacted with their happiness levels across time. So are, for example, extroverted people happier than introverted people? And is it does the happiness come first or does the happiness come second in that uh, relationship? Um, and he, he was doing lots of, he had lots of different projects going on, but that was just one. Um, my, my draw to it was uh, so a lot of psychology is about what's wrong, um, which is you know understandable, but uh, I kind of liked the idea of looking at what was going right um, or what, you know, not only just the absence of mental illness, um, but kind of, you can have, you know, you can not have mental illness and like be like, okay, but like, you know, what helps people be fulfilled and uh, feel really good about life and have a lot of life satisfaction. So that was a big draw to me. My, my dissertation as a doctoral student was on resilience. So it was kind of a, a similar thread mm -hmm. of like, you know, I was looking at kids that went through really difficult things and, you know, what differentiates kids that come out of that looking pretty good and, were the, and from the kids that weren't looking so good after going through a lot of real stressful life events. Um, so again, another, just it's again, a, a carry on the theme of, um, let's not just look at what's going wrong, but you know, how do things go right for people and what's that path? Um, and the upshot of that research in a nutshell was, you know, kids that had at least one adult that they were, um, securely attached to that they had a good relationship with um, that carried a lot of the weight of mm -hmm. who made it through those difficult times better or worse um, that actually and in, in interestingly and surprisingly um, intelligence because uh, i gave them all iq tests as well the kids and uh, their iq actually predicted some of kind of who fared better or, or worse um, so that was those were the two main findings from my dissertation <laughs> uh, but i'm just mentioning it in terms of like the theme of I had an interest of again, like kind of how, how do things go right, or um, or what contributes to resilience in people, or life satisfaction, or subjective well-being. Sure. Mm -hmm. You mentioned like the parents, or having at least one person or one parent to develop that relationship with. What, yeah. in your experience through your research, I guess you you said you're a parent, you have a, a child. Yep, I have so, three three kids. Nice. Yeah. So what what do you think parents can do? to help nurture their kids growing up to give them that strong base growing up and, and help them in that transition? What are some, some things that parents can do? Yeah. 
Yeah, a, a big part of, I think, um, setting a good foundation for mental health is having, um, being very attuned to your child's, particularly their emotional world. So, and letting them um, essentially be themselves. And that sounds pretty simple, like, oh yeah, let your kids be themselves. But where a lot of, I think, parenting can go awry is um, having uh, kind of conditional, so some of the attention or worth can kind of look and sound like you're, you're worth my attention or you're worthy if, so that's the condition, right? Like if you get good grades, if you are a certain size, if you um, your personality is a certain way. So unintentionally, I'm not saying people, I mean, most people are not intentionally trying to hurt their kids, but I'm just saying uh, the message can come across like, I'm okay with you if. Mm. And so, you know, you've probably heard the unconditional positive regard from Carl Rogers, right? Like it's that sort of idea, like being um, very attuned to kind of what your child needs in a given moment and letting them essentially be themselves and let that come forth where, because kids are very sensitive and if, you know, they sense I need to be a certain way to be, to get attention or to get love or whatever from my parent, they'll adapt and they'll do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, as soon as they do that, they're not being themselves. Right. They're adapting to their parent and they're like being pleasing and like, oh, I'm getting good grades or I'm looking a certain way. Um, and then as you can imagine, like if you take that to the extreme, then you get perfectionism or eating disorders or addiction, you know, like mm-hmm. things can really go awry when that gets too rigid and, and and they get too far afield of kind of who they really are. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's like the biggest thing that's, that parents can um, can do for their kids is to be attuned to their emotional experiences, handle their feelings in an appropriate way, and then, um, and then making space for, like I said, kind of letting them be themselves. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we talked about that with someone else who we've interviewed about like, families that have parents that have been extremely successful, extremely whatever they do, and kids have such a high standard, it almost yeah. leads to kind of that depression road, like, hey, I have so much to live up to. Yeah. I'm sure that, would you say that's probably more common in that type of environment? Yes, I see a lot of students here at Butler um, in that boat. You know, I always ask students, you know, when someone's new to me for therapy, I always ask them kind of family of origin, you know, was mom do? Was dad do? Do you have siblings? Mm-hmm. Kind of where are you in the family constellation? Um, and and I'm, I'm kind of also listening for what you're describing, like uh, family values around uh, uh, being um, in a certain profession or at a certain level or um, family values around just kind of the type of work, you know, because a lot of students, you know, they, they will say, I thought I wanted to be a pharmacist and I'm doing pharmacy and Turns out this is not this is not me. Um, so helping people different, helping students differentiate like what's coming from the family or parental influence and what's them. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of. I mean, this it's just, you're differentiating from your family at this age, um, yeah. and then especially in college, you're like trying to figure out you know what's my path, who am I, what's my values versus you know what did I get from my family. Some of that can overlap. But I'm just saying, sometimes when it's in conflict or if it doesn't, helping people find that is a big part of our job, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, we talk about book talk. And so we're always reading something different. And uh-huh. uh, right now I'm reading this one, and it referred to how when people find like their life partner, 
it often resembles the good and the bad from their primary caretakers. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. So I don't know if you've seen some of that as well to where it's like they call it like the Imago or something uh-huh. like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I used to do couples work. Okay. I, I thought it was what I wanted to do when I got into doing therapy. There aren't many couples at Butler, so I, yeah. <laughs> I felt like I got rusty and I've gotten away from, from doing couples anymore. <laughs> but um, I got trained in couples work and I did a fair amount. Um, and I do some in my private practice, so I used to. And, uh, yeah, it's amazing uh, finding someone. It's amazing how often um, that happens where, you know, you can get attracted to someone uh, for the very kind of traits that either you don't have or, or that reflect maybe, you know, like you said, like a parent figure mm-hmm. um, unwittingly, like people aren't looking around, you know, right. <laughs> searching for uh, a partner with uh, that in mind. But right. uh, I think it, a lot of it happens unconsciously mm-hmm. uh, but it happens a lot yeah and you know it's it's interesting because it can either it can go one of two ways that i've seen in couples like it can you can grow from that and like oh like you know if my partner's more extroverted than i am like you know that can help me kind of maybe come out of my shell a little bit or mm-hmm. um or it can be a source of conflict and like oh well, you're, you know you're constantly doing this and i don't like that and sure. like you know and it's kind of that uh, point of contention so uh, w- with couples it's often like yeah those very traits can go either way it's like that can help you grow or that can help you <laughs> be in a lot of conflict right. uh, with your partner right. yeah what's well, uh one of the more surprising things that you've experienced in uh now doing therapy whether it's something that you've grown and learned in or saw someone else grown and learned in uh something that really just might stick out to you like man i had this type of case where, or something you saw in yourself uh, drastically change after a certain moment of mm. therapy. Yeah, um, I've been surprised by um, kind of on the de- it's kind of on the downside, but it, it is surprising to me how almost universal um, trauma or people going through something really difficult um, how almost universal that is. Um, before doing this work, I I just wouldn't have. I just wouldn't have thought that. Um, so, it, and one of the things that kind of trips people up sometimes coming into therapy is the level of, um, sometimes people get hung up on, um, this isn't significant enough, or my pain's different than other person's pain, and it's maybe not, um, they, they judge it or they compare it. And mm-hmm. so I, anyway, I try to kind of get people away from that and say like, you know, pain is pain and uh, comparing it doesn't, make a lot of sense but i'm just saying to your question i'm surprised by kind of how often that's present for people um the other thing that's uh, i think hard to wrap my head around sometimes is when people are trying to make changes in their life um, and they come into this process um the amount of um i don't know what to call it exactly the the amount of resistance or the amount of the, the difficulty level of like making some of the changes that people want to make because you know we come into this like oh we want to help you make some changes in your life mm-hmm. and most people come in the door have that intention like I want to make some I want to change this or that I want this to be changed but um, the barriers to that or the things that get in the way of that have been surprising as a, and it, you know we have a training program here so trainees comment on this a lot too like they're like what's going on here like that not things aren't happening um, and over time I've realized like, yeah, like this is really hard and 
there are a lot of barriers to that um, process of change. Um, but it's kind of counterintuitive, you know what I mean? Like, cause I'm coming to it like, yeah, let's, let's do this. And usually clients are coming to it with mm -hmm. that mentality. Um, but when push comes to shove and you're actually trying to make some real changes with yourself, that can be really, really hard in a nutshell. Um, yeah. that can be really challenging. So that's kind of our role, hopefully, you know, provide, providing space and a, and a way for people to do that. But I've been surprised by that as well. Um, and again, it's just a little counterintuitive uh, that it's, yeah, that it's that hard. Yeah. yeah. And you talk about those barriers. Are there any like universal barriers or more common barriers that you see within these people that prevent them from making that physical change in their life? Like anything that you see, like what's the biggest problem people face? Yeah, not, nothing specific, but yeah. I'm just talking about like within themselves or some type of barrier. Barriers to change and yeah, making yeah. So one is a, a really common one is avoidance. Uh, so we're pretty wired. Like if something's painful or difficult, you know, you want to avoid. Your tendency is to avoid it, right? Like I'm mm -hmm. not going to think about that. I'm going to kind of go away from that. Um, so that's a pretty universal one where um, a lot of our job. Our job is helping people approach versus avoid. You know, we're going to spend some time talking about something that's maybe difficult or painful or shameful or, or whatnot. Um, so that's not easy or fun, but I think our part of our job is helping them with the um, uh, fighting against the tendency to avoid, mm -hmm. um, which again is a natural tendency. Like you injure yourself, you do something that's really painful, um, we, we, you know, I understand like, yeah, you're, there's a tendency to say, I, I'm going to stay away from that. Um, but that doesn't work long term for most people. Mm -hmm. um, and so helping people, yeah, kind of approach that instead of avoid um, is a big part of, I think, this process. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one for people. Yeah. Uh, so that's one. Mm -hmm. off the top of my head, yeah. one barrier. Um, I'm look at what I wrote here. <laughs> I thought about that one. I wrote a couple other things. Oh yeah. So you know, the other thing about that is um, people feel uh, frequently feel a lot of shame around kind of what they're dealing with. And that could be an addiction. It could be depression. It could be anxiety. Uh, recovering from trauma. Whatever it is. Um, that's a really common dynamic. And so like avoidance, like that makes it hard to approach. It makes it hard to talk about. Mm. Like if you feel a lot of shame and, um, it, it's very vulnerable to talk to someone that you don't know very well, mm. at least to start, uh, about something that's really vulnerable or that you feel shame around. Uh, so I think there's, that's another really common, yeah, common barrier to, um, to people, making the changes that they want to. Um, people don't even like to talk about shame, <laughs> yeah. much less, you know, kind of have that in the room and like feeling that. Um, and people do a lot of things to uh, avoid. Um, and we all do it. So, you know, there are a lot of ways to avoid uncomfortable feelings and very common ones, particularly in college students, you know, drinking, eating, shopping, just staying busy. Like all of those things, and again, like we do all, of, we all do all of those things. I'm not saying those things are bad, but when you go to that to avoid, or if you over rely on any of those strategies, then obviously you can imagine eating disorders and addictions and 
depression and anxiety are going to be around the corner. So it's kind of an over-reliance on any one of those or a rigidity to like, yeah, uh, this is tough and I don't want to feel this. So I was just talking with somebody yesterday, a client, and uh, her thing was shopping. So, you know, something tough starts to bubble up. Like that's her go, like shopping is kind of her go-to to kind of get away from. Um, and like I said, for college students, yeah, that can be, it could just be like perfectionism and keeping busy. It doesn't have to be something super negative, like mm. drinking or drug use or whatever. You know, it could just be like, yeah, I just stay super busy, and that just keeps this all really far away. Mm-hmm. Um, so our process is like, okay, well, let's bring it closer and let's approach, and um, and that's kept, that can be really hard, mm-hmm. um, but it can be really healing and really helpful uh, if people are willing to hang in there with with that process. It can be challenging, I think, today, too. Um, it feels like there's a fast, there's a kind of faster pace to, to you know, societally. So um, people come in, like, hey, I want to, you know, knock this out and get this done kind of approach, you know, kind of mentality. So helping people slow, you know, having people slow down, you know, some people just can't get on board with that. It just feels too, like, oh, mm-hmm. too much of a stretch. But it's usually what's called for because a lot of the struggle is, again, it's um, unconscious and happens really quickly. And so you have to slow it down. Um, but people are, again, feels like a little faster pace in life today that that kind of goes against the grain mm-hmm. uh, for them. So if you're getting some, some of that pushback to where they really don't want to open up for the reasons that they're there, uh-huh. h- how do you kind of approach that mm-hmm. to get them to approach. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the better ways to do that is to um, process that with them, like to call that into the room to say, you know, I know this is, I notice that when I bring up X, we kind of go off in another direction or you brought it to this other place. Um, so what's what's going on for you when I do ask about, you know, whatever it is that's, probably difficult um so just kind of naming it bring it into the room say like i know this is what's happening what's happening for you is as you try to kind of talk about x y or z um the other thing is to just ask you know if they notice like what happens for them when this is coming up and what makes it hard just talking about that can be helpful right like Mm -hmm. oh you know you're asking me about my father and his drinking and you know i just heard this again day or two ago as an example and so he'd be screaming at me about this and that, and he'd be drunk. And so, and this is bringing up some emotion for this person. And so to ask, like, well, what's happening right now for you? Um, and then, you know, and then she wanted to kind of like distance herself from that. And so it's like, well, what's happening for you that um, that might make it hard to even stay in the moment with that um, would be another a way, way mm. to slow it down and help people stay with versus avoid. Mm. Um so those are a couple of ways that I would try to get at. Sure. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. But it can be hard. Um, I bet. And, and it's also like a, I mean, I'm, this is maybe a little off the beaten path, but a lot of the work is um, about pacing. So some most, I'm talking about people that tend have a tendency to avoid. And so there are other folks that like want to just jump into it and take it too fast as well mm-hmm. on the other side of the coin. That's less common, but so sometimes we're slowing people down and we're like, whoa, like you can't just, you know, rip through this assault that you had and like 
have it be done in a session or two. Like mm-hmm. that's not gonna, you're just gonna get re-traumatized. Like that's not gonna be helpful. So sometimes we're slowing people down, but most of the time, as you can imagine, we're we're helping people, kind of bringing them out of uh, the avoidance stance. Sure. Um, yeah, and helping them kind of approach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a tough one. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, trying to pace it. Um, I like to be really explicit with the people I'm working with. You know, tell me if we're going too fast. Tell me if we're going too slow. Mm-hmm. Um, I check in with them a lot, like, how's this feeling to you? Try to put the client in the driver's seat. I'm, I'm along, I'm here, but you're in control of this interaction, particularly people with trauma. Um, I, I want them to feel uh, like they have some sense of control in the situation. Uh, that's in and of itself can be a corrective experience for people that have had something happen to them that's out of con- out of their control, essentially, if they've been assaulted or abused in some way or whatnot. Um, so pacing and, and, yeah, that level of kind of uh, control can be helpful for folks. Yeah. yeah. And, and you mentioned there's a, a universal piece to the way people kind of deal or approach their trauma or they compare it. Um, is there, are there universal ways on the road to recovery from that trauma? Is there any commonalities that, that you see, um, in terms of recovering from that trauma, certain, uh, maybe practices or or things Mm -hmm. that, that you'll have people put in place? Mm -hmm. So most of, most of, um, people that, if you look at people, most of the people that have had something traumatic happen to them, first of all, show a lot of resilience and don't go on to develop anxiety, depression, PTSD. Um, but those that do, typically uh, the commonality is the avoidance. So this happened to me, and I don't want to think about it. I don't mm. want to talk about it, and I want to get as far away from it as possible. Well, and that's understandable in the short term, but long term, then you see depression, anxiety, PTSD. Um, it's the staying away from and trying to kind of keep it at bay that then uh, – Either, again, people then have anxiety, like anxiety is the signal, like something's there that's not being dealt with, or depression where they try to just shut the whole system down and depress everything. Um, so so the commonality is, yeah, like helping people, again, go towards and talk through mm-hmm. and um, get this in a place in their head. They're not going to forget about it, but get it in a place in their head that's different, that's more... Um, they can talk about it and not be traumatized, mm. um, but they can talk about it in a more integrated way. Some people can talk about their trauma, but it's very um, cognitive and very re- removed, um, and that's their way of coping, and you know that's where they're starting. We get that. Um, but what they're shooting for is to be able to talk about it in a way that's not, again, not re-traumatizing and not completely detached, but kind of, like I said, kind of integrated and um, that they don't feel they don't have to be as threatened or feel afraid. Sure. Um, that's a lot of kind of what people are walking around with, like, gosh, when am I going to get triggered? When is this going to come up? And they get afraid of that. And, and so the more people can feel empowered, like, if this comes up, it's not pleasant, but I can deal with it. That's what we're shooting for. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you find that, as I mean, your goal is to get people talking about these things and become comfortable talking about these things. Do you think that that drives back to they discover like why they're feeling it in the first place? Because I feel like a lot based on what you've been telling us is 
the bottom line is what your role is to figure out why people are feeling these certain things. Do you find that mm-hmm. getting people to talk about that stuff and feeling comfortable with it kind of answers more questions for them as they do that? Or do you th- what do you think that really does for them in the long game? Yeah, I think um, there's two parts to our work. It's it's uh, figuring out like, gosh, what what is I'm having panic attacks. Like, what is that about? Like, why? It's probably there's a function that that's serving, or the depression, or the eating or addiction. Um, there's something that that's serving. So I think having some awareness of like what that function is, like going back and being like, what what is this about? Like, mm-hmm. why am I doing this? So some having that awareness and understanding of like what is this about? Like that's part one usually of the work but that's not enough because you can be super aware of like oh this is what this is about and this is why i'm doing this um and still be stuck in in what you're doing so part two is then like okay now that i'm got that kind of cognitive awareness now i need to do something different just experientially usually it's in relationship usually it's with a therapist or it could be with somebody that's close to you in your life it doesn't have to be in therapy but but doing something that um, if your tendency is to withdraw, um, you're depressed and you're withdrawing and, um, or you're um, anxious and you're you know, not willing to put yourself out there in any way, doing that with someone, like actually doing it, like having the experience and then having that go okay is kind of part two of mm-hmm. a lot of therapy. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people just stop at the, like, oh, now I know what this is about. And so, you know, I can move forward and change it but I think for a lot of people that's it's not enough because their brain can it usually emo, the emotional part of your brain is going to override the cognitive part so you can have that cognitive understanding um, but when when you get in the middle of it and you're in the heat of it uh, the emotional you're, and you're going to respond in a similar kind of way um, mm-hmm. un, until I think you have a different so we have a you know psychology it's, it's you know what I'm talking about is termed a corrective emotional experience or some people label like type this type of therapy like experiential because it's not just cognitive it's not just intellectual you can't just read in a book and be like okay I'm good I I understand this and I'm good it's you're putting yourself out there again like with a therapist or someone Um, you're taking a risk hopefully that goes better than it did previously in your life and you have a corrective experience essentially but you have to kind of experience it mm-hmm. for that change to really take hold um, in the kind of therapy that I'm talking about. Not all therapists obviously like work from this perspective and there's <clears throat> a million different ways that therapists work, but from this perspective, it's um, some awareness to, to what you were asking, like the awareness piece, but then the experiential piece to really make some meaningful right. change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So Keith, we've been talking about people that, you know, there's things going wrong uh, yeah. that that come for therapy. Uh, what's your take on people coming for therapy when they think they're on they're on top of the world, everything is going right for them? Uh, do you think they should still, you know, talk to a therapist just to kind of keep things in check, or are they if is it one of those if you don't think you need it, you're good type of deals? Yeah, I think that can go either way. You know, usually there's. You don't get too far. I usually look for pain points. Like when somebody comes in the door, mm-hmm. I'm u- most interested. Like where's the pain? Because that's motivational. Like if if there's not a pain point, usually people aren't very motivated to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, now you, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you go to therapy and like oh, I'm, I want to uh, expand my horizon somehow, or I want to explore this okay. or that. Like that's fine. But if 
for for you to do something um, that involves like changing your changing something meaningful about yourself that typically takes some pain it usually takes some something motivating that sure um, in my experience so yeah you, and and then you know the mental health system is so difficult to like navigate in my opinion people that in that boat aren't you know you either have to have a lot of money and a lot of resources sure. okay. or be super motivated um, if you went through all that and you but you're not struggling at all and you just kind of want to do some self-actualization or that kind of work yeah I don't know if there's anyone like just making sure everything's still in check just uh-huh. you're not somewhere losing the handle and you're uh-huh. you're starting to do one of these things where maybe you start avoiding and don't know I don't know if yeah. there are people that were like way up top and like ah, I just I need to keep things in check here uh-huh. so well there is there is that way of um, thinking about therapy more recently, like it used to be old schools, like you go and you do therapy and you're done and that's it. And more lately, people think of it a little bit more like maybe what you're describing, a little more like the dentist, like, okay, you have a problem, you get it fixed and you go as needed. And some people mm. maybe use therapy in that way. Like, and I've had people come through my office um, saying that, like, you know, I, I think things are going okay, but I want to run this by somebody and I want some feedback and I want somebody else's take on this. And you know, a few sessions and that does it for them and they feel reassured or get some sort of validation about, um, or like a checkup in their, you know, uh, they needed to just work out something really minor, but they didn't, you know, in the past they've let it go and then it's really gone off the rails. Mm-hmm. So they're being kind of preventive, like nothing wrong with that. And we're kind of talking with students even, um, here a little more in that, um, with that language, like come in, do your thing and then, uh, come back and use us as needed versus thinking about it in terms of like how we got to, you know, do this and tackle it all. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's going to be two years and like, and, and here, here at Butler for our counseling service, we're doing that partly out of need because we have so many students coming in. Um, we have to kind of shorten our, our model and say, let's, let's tackle this in a semester versus, um, we're going to see you all year or two years or whatever. Gotcha. We don't have a session limit, but so we can work in that way. But I'm just saying we don't have enough staff, and we have so many students coming in now that we have to, yeah, kind of work in the way that I'm describing. Gotcha. But, but could be kind of what you're describing too. That okay. kind of like mentality of being preventive. You're on top of things. I want to stay there and uh, make sure that things are you know, staying on track. Sure. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask about as well is I feel like students at this university they see the counseling and consultation center as a safe space a place to to kind of get away from things how do you like as a director or as a leader kind of promote that type of vibe here how do you promote a place where a trustworthy environment where everything they say in here is safe is there anything that you communicate to people around here or how do you create that environment and are you talking about created like um, how do we communicate to students or or to my staff? To to the staff, I, I guess yeah, mostly okay. to the staff. Like, how do you, as a leader, communicate to the staff to create this a safe environment for people hmm. to come? Yeah, some important things to keep in mind. Okay, yeah, um, I think there are a couple things that help students feel like, yeah, I can come and like my information is going to be protected and. And also from a more diversity standpoint, like I'm welcome, Mm -hmm. whoever it is and whatever identities they bring. Um, So we purposefully, 
you know, hire people and we have both full-time staff and we have trainees. So every year we turn over a majority of our staff because the majority are our trainees. Mm. Um, but we purposefully interview and select people that um, that's a strong value for them, like, you know, diver- you know being multiculturally competent and diversity uh, minded. So having that value, um, again, we try to have everyone here be on the same page with that. Um, confidentiality is kind of an easy one because as the director of the center, you know, everyone comes through, we train them on our policies and procedures, but as a mental health provider, you know, that's the law. So it's pretty simple <laughs> to say, uh, you know, we are all bound by confidentiality mm-hmm. laws of Indiana and nothing's going anywhere outside of our staff uh, without that student's permission. And I've been here 19 years. Um, we have not, like, to my knowledge, like we've we've been able to adhere to that. And so students, I think, you know, they see that you're serious about that, then they, they hopefully then can trust that and feel free to come in and not feel like, gosh, are they going to call my parents? Are they going to talk to my professor? Is this going to go somewhere? Um, that's, like I said, that's never happened mm-hmm. the time that I've been here. So as you can imagine, like as a student, or as a, as a consumer, like you need that level of trust or you're not yeah. going to come in, you're not going to talk right. about it. Like people aren't going to use us. Um, so that part, I think, is kind of fairly easy from a leadership standpoint and, like, the staff of taking that seriously. Again, our license is on the line. Like, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, you, you need to... That's a no-fly zone. <laughs> yeah, it is, for sure. Um, yeah. So those two things, I think, help, hopefully help students feel free um, to, uh, to come in our door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we have a lot of students coming in the door. Yeah, we uh, we see about 12, 15 percent of campus. So last this oh, year wow. we saw wow. six hundred and twenty five students. Wow. Um, did about three thousand some therapy sessions, whatever. But when I first got here, we saw like about one hundred and eighty or so students in a year. Mm-hmm. Now it's up to six twenty five. Uh, yeah. So what What do you think's driving that? Uh, there's a couple things. Um, I think the primary driver is reduced stigma. Students today, compared to 20 years ago, they're much more apt to say, yeah, I'm going to therapy, and that's Mm -hmm. totally, you know. Now, there's still stigma. It's still hard to come in our door for a lot of people, but it's decreased for sure in the 20 years. We moved into this building in 2006. I think that kind of also helped students feel like, oh, you know, we used to be in the BUPD so kind of on that the mm. two-story brick building on okay. the yeah, edge of campus. Okay. We were upstairs. Health services was downstairs. So that's kind of on the edge of campus. It's kind of – it's harder for people, I think, to, like, feel comfortable walking in that door and accessing yeah. us there. Whereas when we when we moved into this building, we saw a spike, you know, in, in utilization. Because uh, I think, again, people saw our signs. They walked by it every day working out. Uh, just more familiarity, more comfort, mm-hmm. more of a wellness kind of vibe versus sure. like, oh, mental health. Like, what's that about? And do I have to be completely suicidal to walk in? You know, like all the right. things that you associate with us. Um, yeah, kind of go, go away a little bit um, being in this space. But overall, just kind of culturally, though, there's definitely, I think, less stigma. Some people attribute some of the numbers to like students being more distressed and the pressures. And there's some of that, like the data that there is some trend of more student distress, but not nearly 
enough to account for a huge number of students coming in compared to compared to a few years, you know, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the other maybe strand to that is um, like medication and therapy, th- students using those things in high school and just being able to make it to a college campus a little more readily than they could maybe 20, 25 years ago when those things weren't as prevalent. And so mm-hmm. they wouldn't even make it to campus back then, whereas now they're on campus and then they need services to be successful and continue that path. So that's there too. So there's a little more distress, I think, a little more like, yeah, this is kind of uh, treatment has gotten better and people can make it to college. But the primary driver is uh, students just feeling more comfortable. And I think we've been, it's kind of a success story. I think we've been good. We do RA training. We do a lot of outreach. So the more we're on campus showing our faces, students hopefully feel more comfortable than coming in. And so I think we've been successful over the years to get the word out like, hey, take care of your mental health and we're here and all the things that the outreach does for us, I think is kind of working. Yeah. But we're really busy Yeah, <laughs> as a result. But that, that's good that people have the comfort to, to come and see you guys, especially yes. in those kind of numbers. Yes. Um, and then you mentioned there still is that stigma of people like, ah, I don't want to go to therapy, but like I got some pain. I can't really talk to anyone about it. Uh, what, what would your advice be if, if someone's listening and they're just like, I'm between a rock and a hard place and I can't tell anyone about it. Mm-hmm. Advice as far as... Um, like to actually go... How to get over that Seek hump. someone like you, you know, yeah. to, to like get the outside help. They can't turn to anyone else. No one gets it. Uh-huh. Uh, what would your advice be if they're like, ah, oh, but do I need I to see know. a therapist? Like, you know, uh-huh. that stigma. Yeah. A couple of things I would... Nor- First, if I had a chance, normalize, like I just said to you all, like how many students use our service, yeah. what they all use it for. You know, because then people are like, oh... Yeah, like that's my thing too, and I didn't know that that was you okay. Know, so I would normalize it for them. Um, I would also reassure them about you know confidentiality piece is usually helpful. You know, just all the things that all the things that all the barriers that potentially could be there. I would just try to address. If they're worried about somebody knowing, then it's no, it's not going anywhere. Um, if they're worried about cost, it's free. Um, am I the only one? Nope. We see this all the time. Um, those are the things I would I would probably lean on to help them kind of get over that hump and say like okay I'll give this a shot. Hmm. Um, students are our number one referrer. So other so when we ask students like how'd you hear about us? Why'd you come in? Like did somebody say something? Was just just your idea? Uh, far and away the most common uh, answer we get to that we have, we actually ask every student that comes in. It's on our form, um, and they say my, my roommate was coming and they had a good experience or my mm-hmm. friend came and and they mentioned it to me like friend referral is by far the the most common way people find us okay yeah so that's another way you know like uh if they see and hear from their friends that can help them get over that stigma and, sure yeah and that's part of it. i think what i like about this podcast some of the ideas like what you were saying earlier like bringing a little bit of this out of the shadows or talking about it um the more we can do that, I think, the better, the more, the more readily students will reach out for help, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's the stigma. It's like not talking about it. Uh, I'm always, you know, we do some groups as well. And it's amazing, like, when st- you get six or eight students together, and, like, I do, a, I do a grief and loss group. So they've all had a parent or sibling or someone die. 
And um, you get those people together and they're like hearing each other's stories and like what the struggles are, what they're doing or, or the successes or whatever. And there's a lot of like me too and like just feeling a lot less alone. And so group is also a way to kind of get at that where, like I said, it's like the commonality or the universality of that just really makes a big impact on, um, on students because they oftentimes feel alone. Or like I said, like this isn't talked about a lot. So, you know, so then they do. They feel like, oh, everyone else has this figured out but me. Or other people aren't struggling this way. And then they get in a room with other people. That's the power of group. Like they see their peers also struggling. And it's like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, that can be really powerful. Okay. Um, That's yeah. good. Yeah. One thing that I'm curious about is when i'm sure you have students that come in here regularly all the way up until they graduate as students uh-huh. so i guess i guess it's a two-part question is kind of the the end game of the process do you do you see people after they graduate but if not like how does the end of that process look like when you're talking with someone who's about to graduate mm. and i guess technically graduate from the consultation center uh-huh. how does that look like yeah well, I'll say, first of all, we, we do see some students year after year. Um, like I said before, though, we're trying to get away from that, just from a utilization, like, mm-hmm. so that we can stay accessible to students. Um, we're trying to get away. Like, if you come in and say, like, oh, I need a therapist for two years now, we're trying to, we're saying, like, let's link you up with someone in the community that can okay. provide that kind of continuity because we're more of a semester to semester kind of the way we're staffed. If we didn't do that, we'd have a wait list a mile long. Like, we, there's no way we would... Right. You know, so that feels bad to us. Like, we don't want... Stu- we want to be accessible. We want students, when they need us, to, like, yep, get in right away, figure... So we've had to make some hard decisions about how long students can use us. Um, but we have done that, like I said. And so uh, back to your question about, like, graduating and kind of how that looks. You know, there's, there's kind of a fine line of uh, hoping people are uh, leaving us in a space that... Like you, there's a message of like uh, empowerment or like go forward and do what you need to do, and you've mm-hmm. you've got this yeah. in so many words. Yeah. Um, but you also but you want to balance that with like if you don't have this, come back or you know come back to this process. You know we we I think you asked about us seeing them after graduation. Um, we don't do that. We can't do that just based on liability. Like you have to be an enrolled student, otherwise like our liability insurance doesn't cover us. Mm-hmm. So once you're graduated, you know, that's it as far as our ability to, to work with students. But we hope that we can end the process. If we've been seeing them that long, again, with some sort of message that balances, you know, again, uh, hopefully you can manage and do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, because the idea isn't to like be dependent on therapy for the rest of your life. That's typically not the goal. Right. <laughs> like we want you to do your thing and feel like you can handle things. Um, but we, but we also don't want to say, oh, like all done and never again. And, um, cause yeah, that's maybe not realistic for some folks too, and mm-hmm. to leave people feeling like, yeah, yeah. Like I said before, like the mentality of like pieces of work and coming back to it, um, if they need to. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And I guess, uh, another question I have is what, advice would you give to a student that is about to graduate go out into the real world and is really nervous because i'm sure i'm sure you get students that come in here and, and talk to you about that oh, yeah. is there any like common practices that that students can can reinforce within themselves to 
maybe be comfortable with that and way to approach that very important transition yeah that's a huge transition yeah i mean we see our breakdown is pretty even like we see first year second year third third year fourth year students pretty evenly across the board mm-hmm. um 20 you know from each class and then about 10 percent are graduate students so um we definitely though have the seniors that are about to yeah about to head out and kind of what what that all brings um you know some of the things that we try to try to help them leave with uh one if frequently they don't have everything figured out mm-hmm. like so, sometimes the distress is like i'm graduating like i have no idea what i'm going to do um and some of the um being okay with some of the uncertainty um because some people are just freaked out by the uncertainty or the lack of um a plan or a lack of and and we understand like there's some level of that's going to cause some level of anxiety. But if you're having you know, panic attacks or you can't get out of your room, or, I mean, if it's causing so much distress, the idea is like this: that you can. Ha- this is not um, so unusual or so catastrophic. Um, lots of people are in this, but you know, like again, normalizing it and bringing it down to a level where they can be like, okay, yeah, this isn't ideal. This isn't how I planned it. This isn't maybe what, but some acceptance for like, this is how it is. And I can, I can cope with it. I can deal Mm -hmm. with it. Um, I think acceptance is kind of a pretty key um, part to this because a lot of times people, again, have like a sense of, I want it. I want things to be different. I I was expecting this or I want this. And, and I mean, acceptance in the sense of like, this is how it is not acceptance. Like, well, like, don't do anything about it or like it's mm-hmm. not a passive kind of like oh well too bad but more like acceptance like just acknowledging like this is how it is right now mm-hmm. doesn't mean you can't change it but because some people just don't want to accept kind of the reality of like what they're dealing with right. and then that causes trouble you know they're like putting off like have you are, you know are you doing anything about like if it is a job search or whatever and like no it's too overwhelming i can't deal with it well you know that's obviously not going to help you get where you need to get either so acceptance of like, oh, this is kind of the boat I'm in. Um, and again, not in the sense of that you should um, accept it and not do anything. It's more of just an acknowledgement of kind of the reality and like, this is where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And now what? Because um, again, a lot of people just aren't even willing to acknowledge kind of how it is. Or they're just causing themselves a lot of pain and suffering by adding to that with, it shouldn't be this way. This is not how I planned it. You know all the things that you can say to yourself about those situations that um, can just cause more more um, more suffering in the moment than what's called for. I'm not saying it's fun or that's a good nice space to be. There's a, like a saying, you know, pain. There's pain and suffering. Like pain is not optional. Suffering's optional. Like mm. the pain of the situation that's real and we want to acknowledge that. Like yeah, this sucks. Um, the suffering part is like everything you add to it about it being again unfair or why me or you know all the things that people can add to what can be a difficult situation so trying to kind of get at that and help them with that piece can sometimes help in that situation for people mm-hmm. again going out and trying to figure this out when it isn't and or when it's again not as they had, had, had hoped it to be mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question but um yeah, no, that, that makes sense about just being comfortable with it and realizing it's normal. Is there any, like, 
like action steps that's that people can take when they're in that position or is that just something that you kind of talk through with them and have them figure out themselves mm. in terms of if they're at a point where like they're just not sure where to go like do you give them steps to take oh. to go from that step yeah and you're talking maybe you're talking like figuring out like what they want to do or mm-hmm. not like you know, if it's like actual steps, like go to the career services and like get your resume right. like, right. like yeah, they'll, they'll right. show you the steps. Right. But you're talking about like figuring it out, like what am I about or wh- yeah. what do I want to helping yeah. them find their identity, I guess, as they go out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this can be, I think, a great space for that because we don't have a dog in the fight, so we're like we're neutral. We're like you know, this is like unlike parents or friends who can, you know, have a say, you know, have opinions about. You know all kinds of you know what you're what you're wrestling with and steering directions. Mm-hmm. So I think this can be a nice process for this nice space for that. Like I'm not gonna try to steer you any which way. I'm trying to help you get to the heart of it for yourself and pro- mm-hmm. provide that open kind of yeah openness, non-judgmentalness. Um, let's I'm gonna help you kind of get to that space. But there isn't like again I don't think there's like action steps or things for me to right. impart in that way. It's more of creating a space for you to explore, figure it out, yeah, you know, what fits, what doesn't fit um, for you, mm. trying to be as authentic to yourself as you can. Um, that that would be kind of our, I think, our role. Okay. Yeah. That makes that. sense. Yeah. So to kind of shift gears a little bit, does, sure. does Butler have uh, speakers that come that talk about mental health? Um, whether it's whether you're in college or after college or just just in general, depression, anxiety, are there um, mm. things lined up or have there been speakers and things that come and talk about that where, you know, maybe a student, they're not sure if they need to go talk to somebody, some therapy, mm-hmm. but to where it's like, ah, I might need to hear some of this. Like, Yeah. Um, so we don't, um, we don't have uh, Active Minds is like a student organization kind of across the country that is focused on mental health and so if you have an active minds chapter in your cap- campus that would be the type of group that would probably bring in a speaker or do mm. something like that we don't have that here at butler um most of the speaking that happens along these lines is from our staff so like we'll do about 100 programs around campus and we'll do it for a large audience we'll do it for just a greek chapter we'll do it in a classroom residence hall um so most of that comes from our office rather than like a speaker. We did just have uh, David Sheff, the author of uh, Beautiful Boy. Uh, he was on campus about a month or so ago talking about addiction. Mm. He wrote he wrote the book and then the movie uh, came out. And so that was really powerful. It filled clues. Um, uh, it was really uh, real. And so the, that initiative was not from our office. We helped some with that, but it was more for a board of trustee um, had an interest and had a connection, I think, with the author and so brought him on campus. But I was really impressed that, again, that they filled clues and um, and it was a really powerful and really, you know, great message about uh, addiction and kind of what it takes to, you know, to, to deal with a serious addiction. Mm. So that was a recent example. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And we try to get in front of um, I do new faculty orientation, so I, I get in front of all new faculty every year to give them some heads up about our service, um, a little bit of education about mental health on campus. Um, students, we have a little time during orientation usually. Uh, we usually try to get with, uh, we do RA training every year, 
Uh, there's other student leader groups that we get with every year. So that's kind of the way we try to get the word out. Mm. Um, we can always do more. Um, we have a new, we're going to, we're going to hire a new health educator. And I was just talking about this earlier today. I think we're going to try to get uh, a stronger peer um, peer educator uh, kind of, so training students to have these conversations with other students essentially. So it's not just coming from us. Um, that can reach a wider, you know, audience. It could be more impactful, quite frankly, you know, to hear some of this from a peer versus a psychologist. Um, so I'm kind of hopeful about that being a way to have more conversation about this and get the word out more broadly. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Those are some of our efforts. Yeah. Yeah. It can be challenging. Uh, just, I mean, one of our challenges is just time because we have so many students coming in, we're like behind closed doors, meeting one-on-one with students. So that means we can't be out on campus as sure. much. And so that's a tension that we we still are out and about quite a bit, but um, the more we're, again, kind of handling the, the inflow, then yeah. uh, the preventive work or just getting the word out yeah. uh, takes a back seat. Well, yeah, you're still out there. You're at least out getting there. the conversation started, which I think is half the battle yeah. anymore. So. Yeah, it is. It's good. It really is. I mean, students, it's amazing. Like, I, I think if students realized, like, the struggle, like I said before, like, kind of the universality of pain and people's struggles, like, if more students knew that and saw that and it was being talked about more, like, that in and of itself would help students not only, like, access services, but just feel less alone and be less troubled by what they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, their whole struggle would decrease a notch or two because it's like, oh, yeah, I'm not the only one and this isn't so abnormal. Um, so that's just exactly the fact that it's not talked about or acknowledged exacerbates, I think, the situation for a lot of students, unfortunately, yeah. which is why we try to get the word out. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. But it's a it's still a challenge. We, we know there's still there's stigma there and there's uh, there's a lot of like, though, you know, you've seen like athletes coming out more recently mm-hmm. uh, talking about mental illness like that's been good. Mm-hmm. So we talked about a couple of NBA players that did that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 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 good. That helps. Every piece, uh-huh. uh, I think, helps a lot. Yeah. Right. I've been glancing at your bookshelf over there. Yeah. I was going to ask you: Are there any like influential books you've read about mental health? Any publications or anything in that regard that's that's kind of influenced you, or anything you you'd recommend sure. to people? Yeah. Um, maybe a couple of things. One. You might have noticed a lot of the books have a mindfulness in their title or a theme. Um, So back in the 90s, as a graduate student, I was really interested in mindfulness meditation. And then um, one of the authors um, uh, writes a lot. Uh, Mark Epstein is a psychiatrist, I think, on the East Coast. He's written a few books on, like, mindfulness and and then integrating that with therapy. Mm -hmm. And that's been really, I think, useful to me. It's, It's interesting to me, but I think anyone can pick it up and get something from it. Um, cause mindfulness meditation is more mainstream now, you know, yeah. than it was back in the nineties. So that, um, yeah, like that, you don't have to be a mental health professional to read about mindfulness and get something from it and have mm-hmm. that be, I think a really useful tool for a lot of people, um, because it gets at the, um, you know, a lot of people complain like, oh, my mind's racing. I can't turn my mind off. And so I can't sleep or, um, I'm being really critical of myself, I'm being really hard on myself. You know, that's a common one, perfectionism. Um, so those kinds of things, the mindfulness approach really, really t- 
targets or I mean it can be really really effective for um, so that's one theme or that's one I, I can't point to a particular book but uh, that would be something that I would point people towards and mm -hmm. I do with the yeah. students I work with I'm like oh you, you know you experiment with this try it out if it's for you it can mm -hmm. be really effective um, you said Mark Epstein what was the name of the guy yeah okay yep he's got several books out and, gotcha yeah so that would be that'd be one Cool. Yeah. And what what do you think? I uh, you talk about meditation. Uh, like, how, what type of role does meditation play? I mean, what are the benefits of it? Is it something yeah. that everyone should practice on a daily basis? What are your your experience with it? What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm off. I I I am a really strong proponent. Not that everyone should do it though. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's not for everyone. Uh, some people. It just drives them crazy and, and you know just sit and like try to follow your breath and like oh my god i'm gonna jump out of my skin if i do this another minute so i and i've had both those experiences like i've i've done it where i feel that way more often than not though i feel like no it kind of brings me down or it you know it helps uh has more of a calming effect than an agitating effect mm -hmm. um, the idea of meditation isn't necessarily actually to relax or calm down it's more about relating to your thoughts and feelings differently and that can be good for just about anyone, right? Like I, like I said, if your mind is racing, if you're pretty judgmental or hard on yourself, you know, if you're trying to develop some more compassion for yourself or other people, um, those are some of the kind of key uses for meditation. Mm -hmm. um, just relating to your thoughts differently, like seeing them for what they are, that they're not necessarily the truth of the matter. Like they're just thoughts, right? Like they're mm -hmm. things that you, you know, we all kind of have a narrative and we tell stories about how things are or how things should be and all that. Well, as people meditate, they can kind of see the stories for what they are, which is story. Like they're not mm -hmm. kind of necessarily the truth of the matter. So people get good at that, um, and that can be super helpful. One of the, I think one of the main things, though, is especially here at Butler, too, like the perfectionism and like being hard on oneself. Um, it can be really helpful to like notice that, notice that, notice that, and start to ease off of that and say things that are you know, less harsh or less... Mm -hmm contributing to that um, and mindfulness practice can slow it down put you really in touch with again like oh this is the nature of my thoughts and then that gives you a platform to do something different mm -hmm. so I think it'd be really helpful for a lot of people but again not for everyone and um, but I do encourage a lot of students that I meet with like yeah mm -hmm. check it out try it um, or we'll do it here and I'll process that with them what was that like um, any difficulties with it you know try it out we'll talk about it um, and a lot of people like I said it's more mainstream and for mm -hmm. a reason like it is really really a nice yeah tool for a lot of people just like you know, yoga's taken off too right and there's a mindfulness part to yoga yeah um, but that's another example too of like slowing down being really in touch being very present um, you know both of those practices call for that mm -hmm. and um, just being really present you know, there's a lot of good data you know, just the act of like being present versus being in your head you know thinking about the past thinking about the future yeah uh, all that stuff that we typically do just being present in and of itself um, increases uh, happiness in the moment mm -hmm. you know, life satisfaction uh, so just that alone uh, that part of the practice can be can be really helpful for a lot of people yeah and I like what you said about relating to your feelings in a different way and being present because uh -huh. like with, with my sales job at first I was really nervous about calling people on the phone uh -huh. or approaching a business for the first time. Uh -huh. It gave me anxiety sure. and made me kind of nervous at first, but 
just normal. Medi- yeah, me- meditation helped me because it made me think about approaching someone like that in a different way, becoming uh-huh. comfortable with being nervous about it. Yeah. And just seeing it as like they're a person just like me. And that's kind of what I yep. figured out through meditation and relating it in yeah, a different that's, way. That's perfect because you said like you're relating to it differently. You didn't say it took away my anxiety because a lot of people think like, oh, I'm trying to eliminate anxiety or uh-huh. anger or whatever the difficult feeling is. And that's not the goal. The goal is to have that feeling and feel like I can deal with it in so many words. Yeah. Like, okay, that's there. I see it and I can deal with it. Right. Versus like, oh, because what gets people in trouble is like, oh, it's there. And like, oh, no, this is bad. And I need to, you know, this is terrible. And, it, you know, it can really blow up quickly versus like, oh, yep, that's there. And I, but I got this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I like that. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to practice so hard to meditate. It takes me a while to get there. <laughs> it does. Like we, we went floating uh, a few weeks ago, and it takes me like 20-ish minutes to finally get the noise out and like uh-huh. get in between that. You're not out, but you're not awake. You're in between that meditation and uh-huh. sleep, so I have to really work at it yeah. to, to like get, quote-unquote, better at it. Yeah. You know? It's funny you said 20 minutes because that's kind of the standard instruction, like practice it for 20 minutes a day. Mm. That's kind of standard. But more and more people have said like you know if you can't do that like and i say this to students like do it for five minutes like do it for whatever right. whatever like just just doing it um getting in that habit being it, it doesn't have to be but kind of it's again interesting you said 20 minutes because that is kind of more the standard of what you're shooting for yeah so so we floated for an hour and it take i was like that first first 20 minutes is going to take me the the mind racing the every uh-huh. the movies that are playing you know uh-huh. to get get yeah. rid of that for a bit yeah yeah and even and even if it stays there if it's not you know that is usually an effect like it settles in mm-hmm. but even if it's not then like i was saying like the idea is like oh can i just kind of relate to that in a different way um and not get hooked by it not be like oh i'm worried about this and then like you get hooked and you go 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 yeah like can i just see it for what it is and then like the wave on the ocean and then like let it go you know can i just see that for again the thought that it is or the and then, and not get hooked. Now yeah. it's easier said than done. We all get right, hooked. right. You know, it depends on the nature of the thought, what comes up. We all get hooked in some ways, but the more you practice it, the less hooked you get. And the more you can kind of, again, relate to things just a little bit differently with a little more, um, with presence, a little more again, non-judgmentalness. And like, oh, okay, uh, you're not getting down on yourself about having a thought, thought or a feeling. It's like, mm. yeah. There's a lot to that that I, I feel like, yeah, yeah, is really, really useful for a lot of people. Yeah. Tim, I think I'm all run out here. You got any last questions that you want to? Yeah, one more question sure. before, before we leave off. And I, yeah. it was on the, the, the sheet of questions I sent you is, I guess, to leave with the audience, like what – in terms of like, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Or like, what are what are some things that people can do to feel like they're making a difference? They're at least progressing towards their highest self, I guess, and living a meaningful life. What does that look like to you? Yeah. Um, you know, one of my colleagues here uh, likes to talk about values, um, and she'll she'll do like values card sorts with people and. At first, I kind of dismissed it, like, yeah, okay, values, values, like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't put too much stock Classic. into it. Uh, 
But over the years, um, as the more I listen to her and get into it, you know, and, and I participate, in, you know, she does this with the trainees every year. Um, you know, so you could have like 50 values in front of you and like her task is like, you know, pick the, t- you know, you have to narrow it down to your top five mm-hmm. or your top three, which is really hard because they're big concepts, you know, friendship or love or financial security or spirituality or you know, on and on and on, like big things that are important to a lot of people. Um, but so the work, I think, of like doing that kind of work for yourself, I think there is some value in that of um, what's really important to me and not just like on paper or like what sounds good or what, you know, see it on a poster, <laughs> like oh, courage, like, okay. But like really like spending time with like, no, like what's really meaningful to me. Um, so one for me, like is helping, and this is on one of her cards, like helping other people. And you know, it's pretty cliche, like, oh, therapist, I like helping people. But, but I've come to realize like, no, that really, really something about helping people like really, really speaks to me. Um, so I feel like I got kind of lucky in terms of my profession. Like, yeah, that was a good fit. And because I didn't know that, like, as an undergraduate or even graduate student. But um, being really intentional or being in touch with those values, um, I think, can really, really go a long way. And, you know, as you put, like, put, having a meaningful or purposeful life. Um, because you're, there's, a, there's a type of therapy, ACT therapy. It's acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT. And it's part of its acceptance, like the mindfulness stuff. And then the second part, the commitment is like behaving and doing things in your life that are consistent with your values and mm-hmm. meaning and purpose. So that which sounds like, OK, yeah, like, duh, like who wouldn't do that? But if you really look at it, you'd be surprised at like how many things you're actually doing that like, aren't really in line with what's really, really important to you. You know, mm-hmm. and then that leads you, I think, to the the opposite place the, the where you're trying to get. So being really intentional about that and in touch with that, I think can be um, kind of the road to uh, kind of like you said, kind of a meaning and purpose or mm-hmm. having a meaningful life because yeah, you're behaving in a way that's consistent with that, you're in touch with that, uh, being pretty clear about it with other people, with yourself even. Um, I, I mean, I just think a lot of people maybe aren't in that space and that can be one way to, mm-hmm. to get there. Um, I think another concept to meaningful, purposeful life is um, being less um, protective or being more vulnerable or or risk-taking, not risk-taking, but um, disclosive or being out there more with like who they are. Mm -hmm. Um, The more you're comfortable and some of that, it sounds easy, but like it is kind of risk-taking or vulnerable-making sometimes to really just kind of put yourself out there, be yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, the more you can do that, and that, the more that lines up with, again, like, oh, yeah, my life has meaning and purpose because I'm essentially being authentic, being myself, having, you know, versus like I'm um, playing this role or I should do this or I was told that this is kind of important or whatever. Um, that, I think, again, kind of leads you in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something about just being seen by other people that can help people feel... Um, like they um, being being seen by others I think can be helpful to feeling like yeah my life has meaning because I'm connect like connections a huge part of I think meaning and purpose mm-hmm. so you can't be connected and feel connected to other people if you're not yourself because that's you know then like well there may be some superficial connection but they don't really know me and if they really knew me a lot of people struggle with it if they really knew me if they knew this and that you know, they wouldn't 
be in connection with me and, and so on and so forth. So the more you can put that out there, which again is risky or vulnerable making, um, but the more, again, then you're in like more of a true connection with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think being in connection with people and being in line with your values um, are probably the two main things I would say to that mm-hmm. to that question. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's I think awesome. that goes hand in hand with being self-aware and being honest with yourself about yeah. what's important to you For sure. and how do I create meaningful connections with people to show those values. So I think that's kind of what yeah. I got from what you said. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. for so, sure. Good. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Keith, thank you again for your time today. Yeah, we, you're uh, welcome. We, we appreciate we, you. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, a lot. Thank, of, thank you. I uh, appreciate just some time, like, again, just getting some word out about mental health mm-hmm. in and of itself. Like, if, if anyone listens to it, like, I think that's that's a win. Yeah. yeah I think this one's going to help a lot of people. Yeah. Help me. So. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I know that you, along with, with this this section of Butler, the consultation center has made a huge difference in a lot of people. So, Good. again, we appreciate here. you sharing your thoughts with us today. So, yeah. thanks again, Keith. All right. All right.